So as I was reflecting on what to talk to you about tonight, I thought of a conversation I was having with some colleagues a week or so ago. We have a regular um, sort of conference call to talk about practice and certain areas of practice. And I was saying to them that I really felt like the willingness to be in a zone of discomfort is where a lot of the learning happens in our lives. And uh, my colleagues and I agreed that um, it's true that, that we cycle through these three states or three zones quite often in our lives, in our experience of comfort, discomfort, or overwhelm. And that even though we structure our lives and we spend a lot of energy trying to move into or stay in a zone of comfort, it's actually in the zone or the state of discomfort that growth happens, that we actually expand our capacity to be, to learn, to, to know, to understand. And so I wanted to talk to you about those three states tonight and how in our meditation practice and our lives we can actually um, engage with them in a way that allows us to steady and deepen the capacity, you could say, for comfort, but also expand our willingness or interest in being uncomfortable or in the zone of discomfort because that's where, as I said, the learning happens. We often structure everything, our, our living situation, our work, uh, the people we interact with, to be as comfortable as possible. And we see the other two as wrong or bad. And if we're in those states, something isn't going right. And we need to kind of move things so that we get back to this state of ease or comfort. And so we do things to manipulate our experience. We spend time with people we're comfortable with. We often choose people who are very similar to us in our in class or race, economic background, um, family situations, interests, um, just so we have that sense of comfort in our lives. And we can develop very conditioned habits or patterns, ways of being to solidify that sense of comfort so we don't have to face the discomfort of unusual situations. And so habits are created to be, allow us to be more comfortable. The very definition of a habit is a repetitive uh, action where we don't have to think about, make choices about what to do or how to respond. We just do it that way. We always have our coffee from the same cafe or we, you know, do something on Wednesday nights or we sit in the same place in the cafeteria or whatever it is so we don't have to expend energy to kind of figure out how to meet this situation. And there's a wisdom to that because, you know, it's helpful not to always be making decisions about um, things. But what can happen is we get stuck. We get stuck in routine. We get stuck in habit. And we're not open to the possibilities of growth and learning and challenge that are there in life. And it can limit us. It can limit our capacity to grow, and it can limit our sense of ourselves, what we're actually capable of doing. And we can use meditation in that same way to 
increase the level of comfort, of ease in life, and reduce stress. Now, this is understandable that we want to do that. It's why things like MBSR, Mindfulness-Based Stress Reduction, is so popular, why it has that word stress in there. We, we want to reduce stress in our lives, and meditation can be really helpful for that, to get us more in touch with what we're feeling, to not be so agitated, to be more equanimous. But meditation isn't just about reducing stress. It's not a practice just to cool out and kind of um, not really feel what's happening in our lives and our hearts. It's helpful to reduce stress. It's helpful, in fact, really necessary to decrease the amount of stress agitation in our lives. But it's not the ultimate goal of meditation. The Buddha said again and again, I don't teach just for wholesome states of mind. I teach for the sure heart's liberation. He taught for the end of suffering, not just increasing states of calm or ease. But on the other end of the spectrum from comfort is the state of chronic stress that many people find themselves in, especially in this day and age, where we're almost in a state of overwhelm, that things are so impactful, the mind is so agitated, there's such a sense of worry and anxiety that it has a huge negative impact on our mental health, on our physical health, on our emotional well-being. And we get so overwhelmed that we can't deal with experience. So we numb out, we push away, we avoid to try and manage that situation. This is not a useful state to be in. It's also not a place where we can grow and learn if we're in chronic stress, if we're in overwhelm mode, if we're numbing out. So we need to learn how to deal with that, how to deal with those states of chronic stress, uh, the challenges of the 21st century and living in uh, a big city, etc. Meditation can be really helpful for us for that. One of the places we can start with that is to learn that these intense experiences that we might encounter aren't bad or wrong. Just because we're having an intense experience doesn't mean it, sh it shouldn't be happening or that we've made a mistake somehow. Um, what often happens for us is we have the initial impact. The Buddha called this the first arrow of some impact, some suffering, some difficulty. And most of us find a way to be with that or there's some purity in that. But where we get caught in what the Buddha called the second arrow or the second dart, where the mind resists and revolts against what's happening with the whole story of this shouldn't be happening. Why me? I don't like this. This is bad. This is wrong. I shouldn't be like this. They shouldn't be like this. The situation shouldn't be like this. And we can really create a whole tangled web of reactivity that again prevents us from being present for what isn't actually encountering that difficult situation and engaging with it in a, a deep and meaningful way through this unwillingness to be with the difficulty, to be with the suffering. 
what meditation can teach us is we can actually be with more challenge than we give ourselves credit for. Most of us have a reactive habit of something being difficult and we run away in whatever way that is. Some of us tend to fight back with overreactivity, maybe anger or self-righteous indignation. Others of us numb out. Others of us um, choose distractions. But this willingness to tolerate or be in the experience actually can be a place of huge learning for us. Eckhart Tolle, who some of you might know, a German teacher, he's not necessarily Buddhist, but so much of his language and teaching resonates. I really like how he writes. He said this in his, uh, one of his recent books, The New Earth. One of the ego's many erroneous assumptions, one of its many deluded thoughts is, I should not have to suffer. Sometimes the thought gets transferred to someone close to you. My child should not have to suffer. That thought itself lies at the root of suffering. Suffering has a noble purpose. The evolution of consciousness and the burning up of the ego. As long as you resist suffering, it is a slow process because the resistance creates more ego to burn up. When you accept suffering, however, there is an acceleration of that process because the resist oh, of that process, which is brought about by the fact that you suffer consciously. You can accept suffering for yourself or you can accept it for someone else, such as your child or parent. In the midst of conscious suffering, there is already the transmutation. The fire of suffering becomes the light of consciousness. So the very willingness to be in this state of intensity has the power of transformation in it. We have to be willing to be there, though, with clarity, not in the overwhelmed state. The overwhelmed state is not helpful. So we can use mindfulness to find more balance. The more we practice mindfulness, are grounded in mindfulness, have a foundation of mindfulness, this capacity to be with experience, even quite challenging ones, can really deepen and grow. So we learn to bring mindfulness to the body. We also use the breath, because the breath is such a great doorway into the body. But we need to bring mindfulness to our thoughts, our emotions, and our moods, our belief, our very belief structures, because that's where we create the story of our lives that has this idea of good or bad, it's, it's right or it's wrong, it should be happening or it shouldn't be happening. James Barras, who many of you may be uh, experienced when he was here last year, loves to say, what story am I believing right now? When you find yourself really caught in a knot of struggle about a situation, about an experience, about a work colleague, about family, what story am I believing? If you can encapsulate it into a few words, you can start to see, you know, what's really happening here? What is it that I'm reacting to? And is it true? I also love the work of Byron Katie. Do, does she come here? Do people know who Byron Katie is? Anyone, a few heads nodding. 
again, not necessarily Buddhist, but very related. She comes to Spirit Rock every now and then, so I've had some uh, direct contact with her. And she's just a powerful teacher. She does what she calls the work, where she has people ask these four questions about the story you're telling yourself. And it's so powerful to look at these storylines of belief that we can have that, again, limit us by, by holding us in this rigidity of self-limitation. So she has, us, has you ask, is it true? And you, you create your story, your one-line story or whatever. She says, is it true? And you all nod your head and say, yes, you're damn right it's true. They did do the wrong thing, and they shouldn't have done that, and I should be angry. But then she says, is it really true? As in, is it true all the time, in every situation, 100%? And, you know, after a while, I have to say, well, perhaps not all the time or in every situation. And then she says, who are you when you believe that thought? How, do you, how does that impact you? What is the felt sense of that? And we feel the weight, the, the heaviness, the burden of that belief system. And then she says, well, who are you? Who would you be without that thought? So you start to play with these constructs and you see they are just thoughts. You can choose them to believe, you can choose to believe them or not. And then lastly, the kicker is she has you reverse it. What's the complete opposite? They were right to do that. It's right that this happened. I should have done this and not that. And I just love the way we, she has you stretch and look at what are you actually believing? How are you holding on to this and actually limiting your possibilities? So through meditation, we can train to look at the mind and the thoughts in this way, but it's really helpful to support that with this foundation practice of how is the body if we can stay present in the body, this felt sense of the body, there's this possibility of staying in touch, staying present as we go through this sense of inquiry. And even though the Buddha taught this 2,600 years ago, and we still teach it today, this mindfulness of thought, emotion, this, the naming of it. Oh, this is anger, or this is fear, or this is sadness. And no, it's so helpful. It's been proven by science, so now we know it's true. Um, there was just an article the other day in the New York Times uh, called The Importance of Naming Your Emotions. And it's amazing, you I'm sure you're seeing it here, how mindfulness is just seeping into every aspect of society in the workplace, in prisons, in education, schools, hospitals, which is wonderful. It's amazing that this is happening. But uh, this author, this journalist, was writing about using that practice of naming emotions in the workplace. At the beginning of meetings, everyone has to check in and you say, you know, how are you? And it's not that everyone is meant to say, oh, I'm fine, thanks, and move on. It's no, no, what are you really feeling? And if you can say that you're irritable or fearful, angry or sad by some loss, just the naming actually reduces the stickiness, reduces the impact. And it doesn't deny or diminish the emotions. It actually allows us to feel them more purely um, and actually stay in touch with them without them having uh, the sort of unconscious impact that they have when they're not recognized and not truly acknowledged.
So we can use our practice to stay in touch when we notice we're going into overwhelm, when these strong emotions are happening. There's a great practice that we teach at Spirit Rock, some of you may know it, called RAIN, R-A-I-N, it's an acronym. Really helpful in working with difficult emotions. The R stands for recognize. So again, this is the naming, what's happening? Sadness, fear, irritation, anxiety, worry, planning. The A stands for accept, allow. We, we, we bring kindness to this experience by allowing it. We don't push it away or deny it. The I can stand for interest or investigation, so we start to get curious about it. I actually like intimacy. We, we get close to this and we open to it. We bring mindfulness to it. And then the N stands for non-identification or this is nature, it's not personal. You're not an angry person, just anger is arising or fear is arising. So rain, really helpful. Recognize, accept, interest or intimacy and not personal, non-identification. So we use these practices to allow us to stay in touch and have this sense of closeness, of connection with what's happening. And that allows the equanimity to deepen. Equanimity practice, again, is such an important part of our um, meditation development. Not to distance or bring sort of disconnect. Equanimity is an invitation to connect quite deeply, but have a trained mind that stays in balance, that can say, this is how things are right now. It's like this. Don't mean you have to like it, doesn't mean it has to be easy, but you can know what's happening. You can be present. As we deepen with that capacity, we start to trust our experience more. Because true equanimity doesn't mean that we won't or shouldn't get out of balance or even get overwhelmed at times. But it does mean that we trust or know we can find our way back to balance. We have this basic sense of inner knowing that we can navigate these experiences, even if they're really challenging. And even if we might get thrown, we will get thrown. The experiences, the emotions will be strong. But as the mindfulness gets really developed, we really know that we can navigate, we can find our way back to more ease and connection. But as I said, the most interesting space is that where there's discomfort. Most of us aren't looking for that, right? That out of our comfort zone, this space where we're not overwhelmed, but we're certainly not in our comfort zone. This is the place where most of the learning happens, uh, where we grow, where we stretch, where we really learn new ways of being. And even though we can use meditation, and it's a valuable use of meditation, to lower the stress, to find more calm, to find a sense of well-being, meditation can actually be also quite destabilizing. 
especially if you do it intensively because it challenges our normal habit patterns or states or ways of being. One of the first insights we can have when we meditate is we have a crazy mind, right? You start to quieten down and look at your mind and what do you see? Most people see a big mess of a mind that's lost in the past and ruminating and agitating or worrying about the future and all you want to do is sit and meditate and what happens? You're all over the place. You're, you're in the past, you're in the future, you're at work, you're having an argument with your loved one or your family member. It's really hard to train this mind, the monkey mind, we call it. And it's been this way, you know, this is not a new phenomenon. Minds have been like this for thousands of years, if not forever. And we see that in meditation. It can actually be really humbling when we look at how crazy our minds can seem. But the good thing about groups like this and talking to other people is you are not alone. You know, this really is the nature of the mind. It's a little crazy. But the more we start to understand that, be mindful of it, we can start to actually train this mind. We do that through this whole process of understanding and acceptance. The, the less we resist or fight, the more we understand uh, on all these different levels. And often the beginnings of meditation, in fact, for many, many years, can be a clearer seeing on the very personal level. So we're looking at our belief patterns and our conditioning and our story about ourselves. So many of us have a limiting or very judgmental view of who we are. And to see that clearly and, and start to not believe it, to have more of a sense of capacity and, and possibility than that limited sense, really powerful. So on the, the personal level, we can, but it can be, I remember when I would go through these meditation retreats and there'd be enormous grieving and, and, and anger and, and self-judgment. It was huge as I reflected on my life and all the mistakes I'd made and the people that I'd harmed and the crazy things that I'd done. But really healing to come to acceptance, it, it did happen. Those things all happened. But an even more powerful way of seeing that meditation can bring is on the impersonal level where we start to notice things like the three characteristics of impermanence, unsatisfactoriness, and the impersonal nature of experience. And as we open to these truths, again, they can be destabilizing. It's like, where's the ground then? If everything is changing, if there's nothing solid here, what do I trust? And to actually find a, a, a foundation, find trust in that groundlessness, that's one of the ways that this can really be helpful. Going on meditation retreats, for those of you that have done that, definitely can go outside your comfort zone with the schedule of sitting and walking. It can be quite intense. Just physically, I did my first retreat in um, India with Goenka. I didn't know anything about meditation. Tried to had been trying to learn it from a book, um, but people said no. Go to Goenka. I was lucky. I've done a couple of retreats with him in person, 
but it was incredibly painful, you know, sitting for hours on end on a concrete floor, just had a rolled up mat or something, and my mind was just crazy. But I knew that I was touching something quite deep, and, and it just, I, I knew I wanted to know more, even though it was so pow powerful. But that very discomfort was what enabled my mind to open and to loosen it from some of the structures that I had locked myself into. So this willingness to be in this discomfort zone is where the richness happens and the insight can happen because we're actually loosening up some of the stickiness, some of the solidity, some of the habit patterns. And even though we can spend a lot of time, as I said, building our lives around avoiding that kind of thing and being in our comfort zone, to actually learn to be okay, to know discomfort and not run away from it, not try to numb out, and so many people do with you know, smartphones, the media, the internet, games, food, alcohol, drugs, all of the, you know, turn on the television so I don't have to think about that problem. This is avoiding the discomfort, avoiding this place of learning. Because if we can learn to tolerate and even welcome this kind of discomfort, again, I'm not talking about chronic stress or overwhelm, but this edge where we know um, there's something that we need to understand, if we can learn to move into that, we can learn anything. We can shift or shape any part of our life, whether it's learning meditation and bringing more peace and harmony into our life, whether it's um, diet or exercise, changing these habit patterns that we found to be limiting. We have to learn how to be okay with discomfort. Start with baby steps, of course. Start with, you know, being, uh, you know, not wanting to push yourself to the extreme. But this willingness makes this change possible. So we need to know all three aspects of this spectrum. The comfort to develop that. The discomfort to be okay with that. The overwhelm how to work with. Meditation can be so helpful as I said at the beginning, with deepening this sense of comfort or ease in life. And the Buddha said very clearly, before we can really deepen in meditation, we have to take care of the basics of life. He talked about the four requisites of food, shelter, clothing, and, and medicine. These basics need to be taken care of. Once we have that minimum level of comfort, then the mind can relax enough, open enough to start this deeper work. Um, the more we can develop this sense of connection to experience, starting with the body, with the mind, with the heart, we can begin to develop an inner knowing or an inner trust where there's just a sense of alignment with the way things are. We're not so much resisting. We're not in contention. And this doesn't mean that we're apathetic. Oh, this is just the way things are, and it's terrible, but what can I do? Equanimity allows us to connect and find a place 
to stand, from then wise action can happen. So it's not about apathy, but it's about this deep and profound connection, knowing that can develop a sense of inner trust, inner wisdom, inner intuition, from which we can then act out of the connection to these simple meditation practices, breath, body, knowing what's happening. And as we do that, it's amazing how the beautiful qualities of mind and heart, of kindness and compassion and gratitude, um, of steadiness of mind, they actually just develop naturally. We don't have to force them or, um, you know, you can do practices, of course, to develop them more, more um, steadily, but there, we touch something that's already innate and we allow it to express itself. So we use the mindfulness to come into alignment, to bring this steadiness of attention as a place to begin the inquiry. What's needed here? What's the wise response to inquire into experience? And so we start to then move into the teachings of the Buddha, where he talks about suffering and the end of suffering, suffering and the cause of suffering, suffering and the path leading to the end of suffering, the Four Noble Truths. This is all possible out of this simple practice of mindfulness. It's not, as I said, just about being comfortable, but about this willingness to move into our lives with this sense of engagement, with this sense of presence that can bring enormous richness, enormous sense of connectivity and and aliveness to it. I often think of um, going swimming, particularly in the ocean, and I know from my memory, the water here usually is a little on the chilly side. It's not Hawaii. But even in Hawaii, you know, it's always a little fresh. And I love to swim. But there's always that moment, you know, when it gets past your knees and you're going, no, this, this doesn't feel good. This is too cold. This is not, I don't want to do this. And I've learned, you don't trust that voice, right? You just dive in. Because then it's great and it's invigorating and it's so refreshing and enlivening. Life is like that. There's those moments of discomfort and all of us, well, not all of us, some people love to do that. I guess I'm more the introvert where I'm like shrinking away a little. This is too challenging, too difficult. It doesn't feel good. And that willingness just to breathe and center and then meet that moment with that sense of aliveness, that sense of present, present, presentness, being fully present. At Spirit Rock, um, we're engaged in a lot of work about inclusivity, making our teachings, the center, the retreats, as welcoming as possible to anyone who wants to come, whatever their economic background, their sexual orientation, their class, their race, their skin color, anything that might, um, any way that people might identify. And part of that work involves us being willing to be in that realm of discomfort, not always just with people who 
look like us or have a sexual identity like us or an economic background like us. That place of discomfort is that place of learning where we can truly be welcoming and not just go with a, well, we always do it like this. It's no, what's, what's actually the most uh, open-handed way? What's the most inclusive way? What's the most generous way to do this? And so we invite ourselves into that knowing that it's what will bring richness and aliveness to our teaching and our practice. And so this realm of discomfort is where, as Jack Cornfield would say, we're about to grow. You know, this is the learning when there's a little bit of perhaps fear, a little bit of uncertainty, but we have this foundation, this connection, this this trust in our capacity to be present, to meet the experience, out of the mindfulness. So this deep inner knowing, enabling us to connect with what's happening. And there's just a beautiful sense of everything can be included. Nothing is an impediment or a distraction or shouldn't be happening. I love this beautiful poem. It's by a 10th century Japanese nun, Izumi Shikibu. Watching the moon at dawn, solitary, mid-sky, I know myself completely, no part left out. And this is what this meditation invites us into. The Dhamma is knowing things the way they are, where we're in harmony with that, we're not resisting. And in that is what the Buddha called the end of suffering when the mind is in alignment, where we're not swayed by what's called the eight worldly winds or the eight worldly conditions of praise and blame, gain and loss, fame and disrepute, um, happiness and unhappiness. And I would add to that list comfort and discomfort. We're not swayed by those. Ajahn Chah, the Thai meditation master, said true success is where we're not affected by those worldly winds. They come and go for everyone. Even the Buddha, they would come and go. But that sense of balance, that sense of um, uh, equanimity, not meaning that you're not affected, but meaning that you can stay in balance as you open. And so instead of comfort, what we develop is a capacity for contentment and well-being no matter what the circumstances are. So we have a few minutes now before we have to end. Uh, any, what's your, been your experience of being in that zone of discomfort and how did you work with that? What did you learn? What helps you stay just that little bit longer so that the growing, the learning can happen? Anyone willing to share? with us tonight, or any comments, any questions about anything that I've said. And the zone of discomfort is here right now, right? <laughs> Being the person who puts the hand up and says, I'll share, I'll speak, thank you. Exactly. 
Yes, yes. Because failure also is a concept. You know, most, what do they say, most great inventions have come out of the failures where they were trying to do one thing and they found something else. We have these concepts. Oh, that's what failure would look like. And if you challenge the concept, don't be bound by the concept, that failure is, is not really even in the picture. Yeah. Exactly. We le that's where we learn. Thank you. Yeah. Yes. Pathologize. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yes. 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 Yes, and that's exactly it. Doesn't have to, you know. Doesn't mean that it feels good. That you know that everything's. But the willingness to be there, and as you say, to know that the learning is happening, and we do have a tendency to either pathologize. That's the sort of extreme. But the other thing you mentioned is fix. You know, you can tell someone, share someone a difficulty, and the, and it's understandable. It's a, it's a, it's a um, trying to be helpful response, but oh, let's make that problem go away because that's wrong, that shouldn't be there. And again, not necessarily. The, the willingness to go through those processes, that's where the learning happens. Yeah, thank you. Exactly, yes. Yes, again, yes, so the familiarity, you know, there's, uh, that's part of the trust. The more we're willing to be in that space, the more there can be ease in the dis-ease, you know, comfort in the discomfort. It, it's like, oh, I, I know, you know, I can just need to be with this, and you know, it will change. That's the other thing we learn, whether it doesn't mean it gets better necessarily, but change will happen. Yeah, thank you. Great. Yes. Um, I live next to a hotel, mm. and, um, and there's noise at night time, so mm. I've decided not to, to hear it. I just decided not to worry about it, mm. so I hear it, but I just decided not to worry about it. But I sort of wonder, is that just being delusional or sort of zoning out? Uh -huh. or where is, am I really, you know, is it making choice, you know, like when something is an irritant, and you note it, but decide to put it aside and not well, exactly, and I think that's the key. You know, if there's something that's happening that you have no control over, can't do anything about, I think it's a very wise response to take the attention away from it and place it somewhere else that's more neutral, calming, whatever. It's wise response. Anyone who's been in Asia, India, Burma, I was just a month in Burma at a monastery where 
I actually found the intensity of the noise in some ways supportive for the meditation because you had to stay so present. There were loudspeakers and cars and horns and, you know, multiple louds, pop music and Dharma chanting and, and instruction, all, all kinds of things, all in Burmese, of course, couldn't understand any of it. It was so impactful. I just had to keep my mind and my whole attention here. Um, and actually, when it stopped, I'd be like, oh, oh, now I've just got my thoughts, and they're kind of crazy. <laughs> so yes, you can, you know, no, I don't think it's a distract, I don't think it's zoning out to wisely place the attention somewhere else when it's something you can't control. Yeah, no, I think that's great if you can do that. Yeah, yeah, sometimes, I know, sometimes, and sometimes earplugs too, you know, you just do what, do what works. And I'm also open, uh, you know, I know we should finish soon, but as I come from Spirit Rock, we have a wonderful retreat center there. A few intrepid Australians have made the trek to California and come visited us. I also teach regularly at Insight Meditation Society, where Eric spends a lot of time in the Forest Refuge, a sister center. If you have any questions about retreats or going on retreat in America, be happy to answer them either in the group or you can come up afterwards and speak to me. Um, I know you d there's more and more stuff happening here, which is wonderful, but we do have the blessing in the States of having these long retreats. We do month and two month retreats at Spirit Rock and at IMS, six week and three month retreats. And it's such a powerful way to deepen in practice that it's great to take that opportunity if you can. So any last questions or comments before we... Yes? Um, I liked what you said about the ground disappearing. Yes. Over, yes. Over, I find I'm more because I like the ground to be solid. Yes. I like to, be, to know who I am. Yes. And, and if something fails, then I can know that I'm a failure and there's something. Yes. Yes. Totally discomforting. Yes. <laughs> you know, there's a, there's a sort of lack of, you know, I was brought up in this world where. Where you hold on to things tightly. Yes. So you know, just let them go. And yes. Of, I, this has to be this way so that I can be me. Yes. If I don't feel this way and I actually feel what I'm feeling, which I can't control, then maybe I'm not me. Yes. That's, that's limiting, that's deficient, because it's comfortable, and we know it. Um, and the Buddha's teachings is very radical in that way, where he said, there's nothing solid there. All you are is a set of processes that have been conditioned. And the clearer that you can see that, the more freedom you'll have. And there is in that a groundlessness, but it's the groundlessness the true groundlessness, there's no place to land. So it's not like you're just falling and it's, it's all, you know, lost. 
It, it's a true sense of freedom. But in that, you know, that's the beginning of a whole talk about, you know, selflessness, not, not self. The Buddha never said there's no self. He actually said just not self. So you're not your failure. You're not this sense of limitation. You're also not your joy or your happiness. They're processes that are arising. And the clearer that you can see that, you can make choices about how to respond and what's nurturing and, and uh, beneficial and for your well-being and what is limiting, what leads to more suffering. To see that there's this constant... Um, potential for making that choice and the deeper and the more clearly we see that the more true it is because we can say that intellectually but this is why we call this insight meditation when you have an insight something actually changes in the way you see things in the way you relate to yourself the way you relate to these experiences and it unravels a little bit so we don't have to hold on so tightly because the trust is there in the capacity to be within this experience and then this experience. But great to see the suffering. Ajahn Chah said something like 80% of our spiritual practice is holding on and not, knowing that we're holding on and not being able to let go. But what we want to get is the 20% where we let go. You know, someone else said suffering is rope burn. We, we're holding on. Let go. It's going. You might as well let go and be in alignment with what is actually happening, not with that view of yourself that you had when you were 15 or 20 or whatever it is that's so narrow, but who you are here and now in this moment. Yeah. We should probably end. I'm talking long Yeah. Well, great to be with you all, and uh, may your practice deepen and bring you much happiness, joy, and contentment. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.